there's nothing fancy about this, but being very clear about what are you doing? Why do you exist? What is the business that you're in? And being very clear about the problem that you're trying to solve, because without that clarity, your organization is missing their North Star. And to be able to communicate that often because people forget, right? And they need to get re-inspired as well. Like, what are we going after? Why are we doing this? And why is it meaningful? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. And I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I head down to Fintech Nexus in New York City for a live conversation with Loveline Sidhu. CEO and founder of BM Technologies, a U.S. banking-as-a-service platform that provides access to multiple financial services. The company currently serves over 2 million account holders and approximately 725 colleges and universities. We discuss how they successfully pivoted BM Technologies from a consumer to a B2B model, building a banking as a service company and navigating a highly regulated environment, the pros and cons of going public through a SPAC in 2021 as a profitable company, putting yourself in the client's shoes, leadership lessons, and a lot more. Loveline. Welcome to Between Two Ferns. <laughs> Welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. We're here at FinTech Nexus, and right in the heart of New York City. And I understand you're visiting us from, is it Philly? Correct. Well, welcome to New York. <laughs> it was my former home, so it's good to be back. Welcome back. <laughs> so, Luna. We're, we're going to talk about a lot of topics, but how about we start with an introduction about you? Let's hear a bit about your journey and how you got to your current role. Absolutely. So taking, I guess this is like a blast from the past. So let me remember. So firstly, I did grow up in a banking family. So through osmosis, like, you know, I always kind of heard about banking at the dinner table. My father is really a veteran banker. And in this space, but I never thought I was going to go into this space. And I think my first sort of inkling, I was in college, I went to Harvard, and I was opening up my own bank account for the first time. And I remember waiting in line for like 20 minutes in this whole onboarding process. And I was like, this is such a headache. I just booked a ticket like around the world in 30 seconds last night. And this is like ridiculous. And so it kind of popped in my mind. But I obviously I went to college, nothing really happened there. And I graduated in 2008. My first day on the job was the Lehman bankruptcy, and I was joining Lehman Brothers. So it was really a very instrumental or inflection point in my life where I kind of saw the fragility of the American financial landscape and what that meant to individual Americans in terms of their financial foundation. 
And again, I didn't act on it, but these are all accumulation of sort of events that kind of, you know, steer you in a particular direction. Anyway, so I graduated. I worked at Lehman, that part of the division, the hedge fund of funds group on the investing side, spent a couple of years there. And then I went and joined Customers Bank. They are a 20 billion asset bank today based in Pennsylvania and with a very visionary management team. And they were exploring new digital banking models. And I came in and headed up corporate development. And it was at the time where Bank Simple, if you remember, and Move in Bank were really coming into the picture and this idea of how can you create a bank people love? How can you leverage technology to change the sentiment people have towards their banking relationship? And how can you help them? And I was just so passionate about that. And I remember talking to the founders of those companies. Past podcast guests, by the way. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And so, you know, that that stuck in my mind, but I went off to business school. We were both Wharton grads, so that was a wonderful experience. I took Ethan Mullick's entrepreneurship class as well, and he put another bug of sort of excitement about building and creating something of my own. I also interned at Booz & Company in financial services and helped a large institution launch their own digital banking practice. So why I'm sharing this is like life, you don't set out and be like, I'm going to do this one day. It was a culmination of coming from a banking family, my own sort of personal experiences being frustrated with opening my own bank account, me seeing first movers like Brett King and Shamir and Josh and Bank Simple and, and Move In and what they were doing, uh, doing entrepreneurship at Wharton doing consulting for financial services and launching a digital bank. And then I graduated from Wharton. I said, hey, now is the time. We have technology that can help us provide a better experience that's cheaper and more affordable. We have customers who are frustrated with their current banking experience. And because of these two things, we can deliver banking in a different way than is being done today and hopefully have a growth model and a net income model that is equal to, if not better than traditional banks. And no branches allowed. And it was with those pillars that we started Bank Mobile. Oftentimes, kids are rebelling or running away from what their parents do. But of course, you know, that's not the case here. How important has it been that relationship with your family, with your father, uh, being also a, a banking entrepreneur? Mm. I think it's definitely impactful. Firstly, I just respect my father. And I think he's a great businessman. And the reason why I think so is he's so creative. He's always thinking about the next 10 steps. And to me, entrepreneurship is really about how do you do something 10 times better than what exists today? And he's always had that mindset. And so he taught that to me and kind of ingrained our mission and how we approach what we do today. So let's talk about bank mobile. What was the initial inspiration, the initial product, and then how did you expand your product suite? Yeah. So we were incubated by customers' banks. So we grew up underneath them. And it was really a culmination of what I just spoke about. So I won't repeat it, but it was really about consumer sentiment is below average in terms of their banking relationships. Yet building a financial foundation is central to every single person's life. Second is we have new modes of technology that exist today, and you don't have to rely on a branch network to acquire customers. And so it was with this sort of mission in mind that we launched Bank Mobile. But similar to Brett and Shamir and Josh, 
I was excited about building a brand around banking. Like, how do you get consumers to love your bank? And so I was really obsessed with a direct-to-consumer strategy. So when we launched, it was a direct-to-consumer strategy. But what I learned very, very fast is customer acquisition costs were extremely high. There were a lot of experimental accounts. There was a lot of fraudulent accounts. And our pillar, one of our pillars that I talked to you about is that we need to have a net income and growth model that is at least equal to, if not better than a traditional bank. And we were not hitting that. And so it was really a moment of introspection about how do we continue to keep going? How do we survive? What pivot is needed to survive? And that's when we pivoted to a B2B2C model. How can we work with institutions, companies, et cetera, that have entrenched customer bases already and still deliver on our mission to provide you know, a financial foundation to millions of Americans by providing a more affordable, transparent, consumer-friendly banking experience? And we felt that we could still attain that mission, but through a B2B2C way and to be able to lower the customer acquisition costs and have a much more profitable business model. If you look at your product suite today, what's the most popular product for your customers? Yeah, well, we're really in the, the, the depository business. So we help with checking accounts, savings accounts, enabling payments And that's really, we haven't really gotten that much into the lending space through partnerships we have. You can open a credit card with us or a personal loan with us through our different fintech partners. And so what makes it popular? We really have two sides of the business. Maybe let me explain that. So we have our higher education business where we're actually solving a pain point for campuses and schools across the country. And what is this pain point? They are dispersing billions of dollars a year in financial aid refunds. This means that their students are getting financial aid. It is then applied to tuition, and then an amount is usually left over that needs to be returned to the student. And we help facilitate this very compliance-heavy, cost-heavy process for the schools. And we also get to connect with the students. And we want to be able to provide the best banking experience for these students that we now have access to across the country. And we give them choices. Do you want to receive this money ACH to an existing bank account or do you want to open a a bank mobile vibe checking account? And today we're opening several hundred thousand student checking accounts today. And really with, you know, you asked about what makes the product sticky. We're trying to help them build that solid foundation, helping them set goals, pay their bills on time, manage their money better, help them find jobs where they can learn, you know, earn more income and really develop and grow with them as they evolve. And, and it's a great model because you're solving for customer acquisition mm-hmm. by, I guess, embedding yourself in the student loan process. So Absolutely. It, it, this is very much BAS, banking as a service. And BAS has been in the news lately. There's been more scrutiny from the regulator. And, and of course, it varies company by company, product by product. But you know, obviously, I'm sure regulation and working with the regulator is top of mind for you. Maybe guide us through how you think about working with a regulator and in a very regulated industry. Mm-hmm. Sure. So obviously, it is very top of mind, as you said. We were also born from a bank. So this is in our DNA. So policies, processes, and making sure that we have a highly compliant program wherever we launch, whether that's higher ed or one of our banking as a service partners, where today we were the bank behind T-Mobile. T-Mobile launched a checking account, or we did with them, called T-Mobile Money. And so, you know, for us, it's really finding a strong sponsor bank 
that has very strong regulatory standing, good capital ratio, good safety and soundness, and making sure that you know that you have a partner that really imbibes all of those things. And then we're considered program managers. So we don't rely on our banks to run these programs. The banks provide what's called third-party oversight, which is what the regulators are kind of going after a lot of banks for that. Are you really providing the oversight for these fintech partners that are running these programs? And we've been very successful doing that, as I said, because we were born from a bank. So we run our own compliance team, risk team. We do fraud as a managed service, compliance as a service. We do customer service. We do complaint management. And so we're really good at managing the whole regulatory process from from beginning to end to be able to support all the programs that we have today. Lovely. You have built a complex organization and that takes very deliberate work. Tell us a bit about your leadership philosophy, your philosophy about building a team. How has it matured over time as you have also matured as a leader? I, I think the audience is going to be very interested in that aspect of your story. Sure. So, yeah, you're right. It probably has evolved over time. So when I started this business, I was 28 years old. And I think it's been a learning curve. Learn as you go and evolve as you go. But there's a few key principles that I think that have stuck with me. So one is just there's nothing fancy about this, but being very clear about what are you doing? Why do you exist? What is the business that you're in? And being very clear about the problem that you're trying to solve. Because without that clarity, your organization is missing their North Star. And to be able to communicate that often because people forget, right? And they need to get re-inspired as well. Like, what are we going after? Why are we doing this? And why is it meaningful? And making sure that the company goals really link up to that North Star of what you're trying to do. And so, so that's number one. I think number two is, you know, leading by example. So I think people have always seen me as a leader and an entrepreneur, like very much in the trenches with the rest of the business, making sure that I understand deeply, you know, what's happening in every aspect of the business. They see me rolling up my sleeves and we're not a big organization. And you need that sort of hard work, that passion, that grit when you're in a business that's really a startup that, you know, continues to evolve and grow and change and pivot. So I'd say that that's number two. I think that embracing change is huge. So we talked about it, Miguel, in the beginning. I told you that we started as a direct-to-consumer, and I was like, hey, I want to build a brand out of banking. I want people to love our brand, you know, and it was all about us and our brand. And as I said, that wasn't going to be profitable for us. And so we had to learn how to adapt and change and pivot, but still stay, you know, committed to what was our vision. I told you, I felt that we could still maintain our mission, which was to provide affordable, transparent, consumer-friendly banking. We're just going to have to do it in a different way. So that's another one that sticks out. And, and lastly, I would say learning, growing, evolution, like that needs to be part of our culture because we're in a business where there's a lot of competition. There's a new bass player coming up every day. There's a new neobank every single day. So we're lucky that we have scale and we have a first mover advantage, but we have to constantly be seeing that what is our competition doing and understanding the customer, never losing pulse of what are they looking for to make sure that we can customize solutions and always stay ahead of the curve. Do you have any philosophy or, or lessons around bringing people on board, interviewing, and kind of like ensuring that this is the right person to bring to your team? Mm. 
Yeah, I think that especially the more senior the role, the more important that is. So I actually just hired a co-CEO. So that was a very big move for me personally, for the company, but it was the right move. But, you know, we had a chance of, he actually was a board member before. So we had a chance to informally kind of work together for him to get up to speed before he came on. But it's not like we crafted all of that. It kind of happened. But that's an example of finding ways to be able to test people out before they come in, because not only are technical skills important, but cultural fit, mutual respect and trust are critical in these sort of senior roles. So I would say any way that you can kind of generate some proxy of a working together in some format before bringing someone on board is, is a great way to do it. But yeah, and once they come on board, you know, again, mutual trust and respect. Like, I really believe in authentic leadership, like speaking what, what's on your mind in a respectful way, because the more you are vulnerable and trustworthy in what you share about the business, the more you can really work together to solve problems and to excel. Yeah, makes sense. So let's talk about the process of going public that for many entrepreneurs that is, I wouldn't say the North Star, but it's something they aspire to. They see it as a, an important milestone of the life of the company. Mm-hmm. And not only did you go public, but at the time, you were the youngest female CEO to take a company public. Very impressive. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure it was a, a stressful period. W- what did you learn about taking a company public? And should every CEO really look forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) So that process was quite a process. So we actually did it in 2021. So we went public through a SPAC vehicle, which was very, very big at the time. And I think a lot of companies maybe prematurely IPO'd through that process. I'd like to say that we're not one of them. We have a very strong sort of fundamental business. We're profitable, strong business model. We have scale, we have customers. But We've also been hurt by that sort of umbrella of SPAC as it relates to our our valuation right now. But what I'd say is it's a great learning experience. It's a wonderful process to go through. As a public company, there's definitely perks, right, where there's liquidity, access to capital. Uh, There's the ability to be able to attract and retain talent because you actually have liquid equity to, to give them. And you just are more on the radar, I think in terms of just people knowing you and having access to your company, et cetera. So there, there's many perks. I also think that being a public company adds a layer of discipline because there's such scrutiny and there's quarterly scrutiny and there's pressure to kind of grow and develop at a very fast, rapid pace. So these are all good things you could say about being public. It comes with its own downside as well. I, I think that You don't want to be held to a quarterly standard because you're trying to invest in a company for the long term. And there is an inherent dissonance that exists with that and pressure that exists with that where you don't always make the right trade-offs because you're forced to think in in a very sort of short-term way. But should everyone aspire to it? I think it's a very unique experience where it shouldn't be for personal gain. It really depends on what does your company need and does the access to capital, does the liquidity and, you know, does that sort of limelight of being a public company, you know, help your business grow in any way? And if not, then staying private is quite honestly easier. (laughs) And I suspect talking to other CEOs, one of the things that they've gained out of going public is more credibility 
with clients, especially when it's a B2B business, your case B2B2C, do you think it has helped you with that? Maybe it has helped you win more clients? I think it definitely builds credibility because people know that there's a set of standards that have to be met for you to be a public company. And so you're just kind of legitimized in, in that way. And so I think, yeah, it, it's helpful, but that doesn't mean that you can't access the same sort of credibility through, through, through private markets as well. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then staying on that topic, what have you learned about client management, right? Because one thing is sales and selling something, but once you get the client on board, you have to deliver yeah, what have you learned about managing an ongoing relationship with pretty complicated large clients? Yeah. Yeah, I think you always have to put yourself in the client's shoes and always be thinking about what are their pain points and are you delivering and trying to solve for those pain points? How is what you're delivering beneficial to their core business? Because this might be just a financial product that they're launching within the business, but how does that financial product really provide synergies and benefit to the core business. So for example, with the T-Mobile relationship that we have, we're always thinking about how does the bank account T-Mobile money, how can we embed that within the T-Mobile ecosystem to help, you know, drive more wireless customers to the T-Mobile brand, engage them, create higher, you know, customer lifetime value. You know, how does it help with the overall financing? There's a huge financing business with T-Mobile. How can we link that in? You know, T-Mobile also has a travel business. How can we link in this debit card product and get perks for travel? How can you link it with T-Mobile Tuesdays where they have discounts with a bunch of merchants? Can you amplify the discounts through the debit card that we offer? So really it comes down to being a partner with them and making sure that you're always thinking about their business, how to better it, how to make sure that you're aware of their pain points and really support their their business model in a greater way. So, Leveline... You have been in fintech for a long time. You've seen the evolution of the industry. What do you think is going next or better said, what areas of fintech are you most excited about going forward? Yeah, it's the it's probably the buzzword of the moment, but I am truly really excited about AI and how can we leverage AI in our business, both on the revenue generating front, meaning how can we use it to be able to better segment and personalize our customer bases and reach out to them. You know, we've been talking about it for years where if someone inputs just generalities about what's important to them to help build their financial base, you know, what are their goals? How much are they spending? What is their income? How do you put it all together? How to manage your money? No one's doing it well. But if you have AI coming in and helping put all those pieces together, I think that there really could be a very strong consumer case of helping them manage their money better. That's just one use case. And then on the cost side and the efficiency side, there's so much from automation to fraud detection to risk management. So to really reduce costs and create operational efficiencies, I think really there's so much potential there. On the wallet side, it's, I guess, Andy Ratcliffe's self-driving wallet. (laughs) So you think that AI is going to help us get much closer to that? Absolutely. So much potential. I mean, have you played around in GPT? I'm, I'm amazed at the conversations just myself and GPT have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm definitely using it. Not every day, but every other day, I would say. <laughs> and one thing that myself and I'm sure other folks in the industry are worried about 
is also the potential for increased fraud mm -hmm. with this AI tools. How do you think about fraud? I think it can help because, uh, you know, fr the main sort of use cases for fraud are not being able to identify someone correctly and them coming in. But when you have a lot of behavioral sort of characteristics and a whole database of how certain people behave when they do conduct fraud or what type of people behave in a way that they don't conduct fraud and you aggregate all that information together, you can create really strong risk-based models to be able to predict fraud before it happens, detect it faster when it does happen, and then resolve it faster because you know, a lot of the fraud that does take place, that's card fraud. And there's a reggae. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you have to go through an investigation process and a chargeback process. And it's a very consumer friendly process. So the more that you can automate that and create rules around that to handle that in a more efficient manner, it's going to be huge. Well, I'm also excited about the, the future of our industry. Hopefully can continue investing in some AI driven companies. And it's going to be exciting to watch. But Laveen, thank you for joining in this chaotic day at Pentec Nexus. Delighted that you took the time to join us. Oh, I'm so grateful you invited me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Laveen from BM Technologies. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.